Now entering Nerdist.com. It's the Nerdist Writers Panel on the Nerdist Podcast Channel. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Writers talking writing can get pretty exciting. The talk can be enlightening. It's very rarely frightening. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Welcome to the Nerdist Writers Panel Series, an informal chat about writing and the business and process of writing. Each and every panel benefits A26LA, the national nonprofit tutoring program. For more information on A26LA, visit A26LA.org. I'm your moderator, Ben Blacker. Follow me on Twitter, at Ben Blacker. I'm the co-creator of the Thrilling Adventure Hour stage program and the style of old-time radio, available as a podcast on iTunes and via Nerdist.com. Uh, I've written for the series Super Ninjas and Supernatural. Our first panelist spent five years on Star Trek Deep Space Nine before developing Gene Roddenberry's Andromeda, a hit uh, syndicated series. After writing for The Dead Zone and The 4400, he developed the Sci-Fi Networks, The Dresden Files. He's currently co-executive producer of Alphas. Please welcome Robert Hewitt Wolf. Oh. Hi, thanks for being here. Hey, good to say, be here. Yeah, say hi so they know what you sound like. Hello, mic check, 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 check. perfect. Uh, next up, a lauded stand-up comic. Uh, our next panelist wrote for a number of disparate shows, including The Ben Stiller Show, Stark Raving Mad, a whole bunch of things that we'll ask him about. Uh, before landing at The Simpsons in 1999, he stayed for seven years, all the while continuing to write and perform. His latest comedy special is called Let Me Put My Thoughts in You. Please welcome Dana Gould. Welcome, Dana. Welcome. I thought you said a louder stand-up comic. <laughs> a louder stand-up comic you'll never meet. <laughs> well, now that Sam Kinison's gone. <laughs> May he rest in peace. God rest his soul. <laughs> um, and finally, beginning as an assistant on Dawson's Creek and once and again, our final panelist worked her way through the ranks on Kyle XY, Brothers and Sisters, Dirty Sexy Money, and a number of other programs before creating Life Unexpected, which ran two critically acclaimed seasons on The CW. She's currently a writer on ABC's Revenge. Please welcome Liz Tiglar. Yeah, totally. No, it's perfect. No one ever gets it right. Thank you, guys. Thanks for being here. Let's start uh, with you, Liz, because as Twitter told you, I watched Life Unexpected this weekend. Thank you. Oh, my God. It's so good. Thanks. Uh, Have you guys seen it? Uh, pilots, Pilots are really hard, and we've talked quite a bit on these panels about how difficult a pilot can be not just yeah. the process, but the, the actual writing of a pilot. Yeah, uh, yeah. Tell us where this show came from. Uh, tell us what, you know, from, from the inception of it to actually getting it on the air. Um, well, it was kind of one of the longest pilot processes, uh, processes ever because it, uh, I started it in, I think, 2007, and we only did 26 episodes, and it didn't, end until 2011. So it was just a very long... For, for not many episodes, it took a long time. Um, but, you know, came up with the idea, um, paired up with Mojo Films at ABC, and the idea was really um, just kind of... I mean, a little bit of, like, what does the CW want? You know, Gilmore Girls, they want that again. <laughs> Gilmore Guys. <laughs> what if it was a dad? What if it was... An, and then it, like... 
spiraled to like, I God, I hate babies, but it'd be so great if like a 15-year-old was just, I found out like by some miracle, I just had a 15-year-old. And, and then, you know, it just kind of spiraled to that. But, um, and I kind of came up with the idea. And then only after having worked on it for so long, could I kind of see more clearly that it was resonant just of my own life. I'm an adopted kid. I always wondered who my birth parents were. I always had this fantasy that they were these young, cool parents, um, you know, somewhere out there that would be, you know, um, you know, I'd love to meet and would be so amazing to know. And then, of course, I thought the realities are probably these, like, fucked up people. And anyway, <laughs> so it just kind of spiraled to that. So um, so you weren't aware of these correlations to your own life as you were going through the I'm not the that smart. <laughs> <laughs> That's so I'm interesting. I'm yeah, no, really in retrospect, didn't. it obviously makes so much sense. No, I didn't at all. It was literally not until we were sitting in writers' meetings, like, staffing writers and talking about the show. And someone was like, my producing partner was like, this is, like a lot about you. And I was like, <laughs> but, oh, I think I was going off about how I hate it when people just write about themselves and I think their, their own story is so interesting. <laughs> it's not and no one wants to watch you and, you know, anyway, I was going off on that and she's like, but this is a lot about you, right? And I was like, oh, I hate me. Um, but it kind of turned out, it, you know, it was. And, um, but it's and, fascinating. <laughs> I, I find it really interesting that you can't keep yourself out of your writing. Oh, yeah. right. um, there's true. a very, I'll be very brief, there's a, one of my favorite books about writing is Stephen King's On Writing, which is a great book. And it's also my favorite book about how to get hit by a van (laughs) of the seven. But he tells a story about having, like, a period of his life that he doesn't really remember because he was just doing so much coke. Like He goes, I know I wrote Cujo. I have no memory. I read it now, and I clearly see that it's my writing, but I I have no memory of it. But he said, I did write a book called The Tommyknockers about... A, go- a race of people that come and they allow you to be live better and you're smarter and you're more athletic, but it ages your body prematurely. And the first sign of your body dying is nosebleeds. And he goes, and I literally didn't realize until after I had read it, oh, I was writing about my Coke addiction. Yeah. Interesting. Um, take, continue uh, through this process. And Dana, this is, you actually point to something I want to hit on again with you. So hold Coke that addiction. thought. <laughs> yeah, all of your addictions. Your problem. <laughs> yeah. um, but just very briefly, uh, Liz. So, so once you kind of landed on this premise, yeah. and you took it back to your producing partners or to the network yeah. or whoever it was, was there any pushback on it? Well, yeah. I mean, when I first conceived the show, I mean, I don't know how many people are familiar with the show, but it's basically about you know, it's about a, a kid who's given up for adoption at birth and put in the foster care system, and she basically through slight television contrivances, um, gets put back into the custody of her birth parents, who are two people who had sex in high school, one night stand, hate each other. She's like a radio, successful kind of radio DJ, and he's just a bar, kind of bar owner who's an overgrown kid. Um, When I first pitched it, you know, she was a bike messenger having an affair with a married guy, and he was a, like a stoned kind of... He worked for like one of those like Brentwood security systems, <laughs> like his dad's company. And, you know, it was, it was different. And then it landed at the CW, and we talked a lot about wish fulfillment um, <laughs> and how they needed to be people people wanted to be. And, um, inter- Middle class minimum. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> and in terms of... Even creating the characters, you know, I I wrote, I went through a lot of outlines and a lot of first drafts or hundredth drafts, and um, 
I remember when I first handed in the first draft, um, there was a main character, Kate, the mom, and um, the notes I got back were like, this woman is fundamentally unlikable, like, she's shrill, she's mean, she's cynical, she's bitter, um, we want women that, like, other women would like, we want women who, it was this whole thing, like, they don't put their problems on other people, they more t- turn them inward on themselves, I was, like, like cutting or an eating disorder, like, I was like, what? <laughs> anyway, the thing that was so weird was, of course, I realized... I had just basically written myself. So, like, I felt like they were basically saying, like, you're shrill and unlike. Like, I was like, Bleh. So, you know, there was a lot of, like, how do you make yourself more likable? And, uh, I don't know. I didn't realize she was Rewrite so... Rewrite yourself quick. Uh, yeah. I was like, she's quirky. She's distinct, you know. But um, anyway, it, yeah, no, no one will watch this person. Um, but anyway, it went through a lot of machinations and, and kind of spanned the strike. And we had a lot of false starts and seemed dead a lot. And, and somehow it kind of skated through. And um, weirdly, by the, by the time we shot the pilot, we'd kind of come full circle back to where we started. It was one of those things where you there were so many notes that the only notes left to do were put it back to how it was, like once you did everything. So it actually was, was, it was an interesting process, and it was great. I mean, it was hard, but it was good. Uh, good. Well, we'll pick up there uh, when we come back. But Dana, uh, the question I wanted to ask you was, um, on The Simpsons, where you were for seven years, is that right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, <laughs> you bring up how it's impossible not to put yourself in the story. Here you are in a show that had been running for quite some time already. Um, how did you put yourself in the stories that you wrote? Oh, it was, thank God, because, you know, all, you could always tell when you weren't in the story because your episode idea would blow. You know, it was like, Homer finds a hat. (laughs) He thinks it's magic. It's always (laughs) Um, You know, and Jim Brooks really does, he is there, and you do have to pitch your stories to him, which is really fun. It's like, yeah, it's like being on fire. Uh, It's that relaxing. Um, And, uh, and... He has a great way of dismissing a bad idea, which is a, ah, it's jive. (laughs) (laughs) I know you you feel like you're pitching to Art Blakely. (laughs) Blakey, sorry. Um, Long story longer. Um, But they really do hammer you home to keep the stories emotionally resonant. Mm -hmm. Um, And, for example, the first episode that I wrote was um, really about my father, who was a... uh, um, moonlighted as a bartender and opened up a bar uh, like a private club private club hunting club ostensibly to avoid the Massachusetts liquor laws uh, and it was basically it was called Homer the Mo. it was where Homer took over Moe's and then and then the other half of the episode was also something that happened to me was being it was where uh, Moe turned the bar Moe came back uh, and turned the bar into like a high-toned Ian Schrager-like hotel, which was based on my experience of being in the uh, men's room at uh, W in New York and not realizing I was in the men's room because it was just a, a, a f- three walls and then one wall was a waterfall and I didn't know where to go. And then, <laughs> then some guy came in and started pissing in the waterfall and a guy walked out of the other wall and I realized that I was in a men's room. It was, it was a gangbang of form over function. Um, uh, but to what you said, uh, the you know the best episode that I wrote on the show, if not the you know uh, probably not the funniest, but I think the best 
story that I wrote was being an adoptive parent uh, uh, based on our experiences when we went to China to adopt our first daughter, mm -hmm. and uh, who is ironically not Chinese. She is from Montana. <laughs> uh, no. Um, but uh, no, and that was called uh, Goo Goo Guy Pan, and that was my favorite episode. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> how, uh, how many writers were in the room uh, during your years there? Uh, they have about a dozen writers uh, come and go uh, on and off. And we have two rooms because there's just so much to do. It's like, a, it's like a, an automotive uh, plant. Yeah, I was going to ask, have, what's the process there um, with two well, rooms going? Well, you have – this is I'll, – I'll very briefly, I'll tell you this. From uh, episode conception to uh, conclusion, uh, you'll uh, pitch story ideas. You'll have a story idea. Then you'll come – you'll sit with the group and you'll uh, get the story idea approved and then you'll – just sit for two or three days and go, well, this could happen, this could happen, this could happen, this could happen. Everybody's sitting in just a, a, just a Bible of, of, of ideas, a giant thing of ideas. Then you go off and you write the outline, which is about 21 pages. Uh, yeah, it's like they like uh, seven pages an act, and, you know, it's, they have a math. It's a, you know, it's a th it should have three really solid jokes a page. Okay. Um, I always, my voice goes up when I lie. No problem. Uh, then uh, you'll come back. They'll tear that apart for a week. Then you'll come back. Um, Does the room tear it apart? Yeah. Okay. yeah. Um, and then you go uh, write the script, come back. That gets, you know, and then, and then you'll, you know, you do all that work. And then you'll come back with the script, and then you'll just start rewriting it. I was just like, all right, page one. And it's just, you know, it's, it's not a place to work if you believe your work is precious in any way. <laughs> and is it, is it everybody pitching jokes or are they yeah. doing structure, well, this, structural this is, changes this as well? Is, this is the, uh, it depends on what it needs. It okay. depends on what it needs. But it'll, the, the basic structure will, be, will, will hold until the table read. Mm -hmm. If it holds together, it holds together. Then the table, you know, you'll, so you do a couple drafts before you get to the table. Then, the, then you'll do the um, notes on the table read. Then you'll do the record. Then it lays fallow for six or seven months. Then it will come back as a pencil test animatic. Uh, you'll uh, three or four months pencil test animatic. You'll do notes on that. Then it goes to Korea to be animated. Comes back and then you do color notes on the color. Um, and you have that going on with 22 episodes a year. So the rooms are split in half, and you have two rooms going. Well, what are we doing? We're doing this. All right, we're doing that. All right, we'll do today's animatic. Why don't you go break Matt's story? And then you know, so you do all. Uh, it's 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 a miracle how they. How they get it to to work? I mean, it's 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 amazing. And people always ask, uh, you know, when is the show going to stop going on? And um, I thought Matt Graney actually had the funniest answer to that, which was, "We'll do the show until we run out of ideas, and then we'll go three more years." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, thanks, uh, Robert. Yep. Uh, sort of the same question for you because you've spent time developing other people's properties uh, yeah. in addition to your own. Yeah. Uh, but I'm curious about those other ones on Andromeda and Dresden Files and uh, the thing you're working on currently also? Yeah, Untitled Robert Hewitt Wolf Project. Yes. title ever. <laughs> <laughs> sounds of like three a of, us, of the three of us, Robert has wrestled with the largest unitard budget. <laughs> yes, that's true. It's true. <laughs> I so have, far. I have put more people into rubber, uh, rubber faces than anyone else. Too. For now, you haven't seen what happens this season that's on true, Revenge. That's true. That's true. Yeah. I haven't uh, seen what's happening this season on Revenge. <laughs> um, but I'm curious about, you know, again, bringing your point of view and your perspective to these properties that you developed. 
How do you go about it? What is your experience? Well, with been? resin files, I just applied my own experience working in a wizard shop. Sure. So, you know, that was um, – no, I mean, I think that it's, even, it's a little harder with uh, the genre material. You sort of have to draw from a larger canvas and you get to sort of stick less of it in. Um, but, uh, for example, for um, – for Andromeda, um, some things that were sort of somewhat based on my father, who was a special forces. Uh, he was Colonel Kurtz in Vietnam. He commanded a thousand Montagnard riflemen as a Green Beret, and so there was a, a certain. Well, Colonel Kurtz implies that he then had some deep psychological problems. <laughs> you said that. I didn't say that. Uh, so, um, so he was I, like Manson. He had a ranch. Yeah. <laughs> My dad's a very good Republican. Uh, so, yeah. uh, so, um, so a, a sort of my experience of him uh, sort of projecting onto the main character and then um, my own personality probably manifested itself more in the sort of secondary characters who in Andromeda were incredibly snarky and gave the lead very little respect most of the time. So, you know, there's that. Uh, um, particularly, I don't no one saw this show. So, uh we made it for a million dollars an episode, but we did do a hundred plus. Um, I, I got fired after thirty. Uh, so, so uh, the show was about my problems with authority. Didn't I, Can we follow didn't up? I, on that? Didn't I mention that? So, hundred episodes at a million an episode. Hundred and ten episodes. I wish I had a calculator. Yeah, hundred and ten million dollars. Nobody can do that. Um, yeah. So, uh, so Lord. particularly, there's a character named Harper who has very much kind of my voice in a lot of ways, and there was also. When I was more philosophical and feeling a little more sort of meditative, there was a character named Reb Bem who sort of carried the philosophical content on the show. And then there was, you know, various other prisms of, you know, every writer. That's what all the characters are sort of prisms of themselves. Um, Dresden Files is also about uh, someone dealing with an absentee father and <laughs> the issues thereof and, and some, some uh, you know, dark family past, uh, which we actually – in sort of invented. It wasn't in Jim's book. We we took the villain and we made him an uncle, and we we did a lot of stuff that that uh, wasn't there. Um, some of that was mandated. But anyway, but the point is, you, you you do look for you do look for ways to sort of say things you care about, and by doing that, almost unconsciously, you imbue the show with a certain amount of your philosophy, your your voice, it just happens. There's no way around. But that's the difference between everything that you've said. I mean, that is the difference between a writer and a hack. From the business pr- point of view, they'd much prefer you to be a hack because you're easier. You know, you know, it's just like, you know, maybe it's about a unicyclist. I should try that sometime. In 70s Venice, maybe. Um, that, you, you know, that you're writing from a point of view and that you're writing yeah. something real and you can't get out of it. You know, it's, it would be much... It would be great to just... And that's why, that's why people who... Don't I always look at my friends who are kind of people who don't want I don't want to have I don't want to have a I can't get married and have kids because you know it's like I'm, I got to work it's like no that's what are you going to write about <laughs> going to Staples I write about you know, my it's dog like you have to write about you have to have a life you have to have a life to write about it I was, this will be the last time I refer to this book because then it will become sweaty but the greatest thing that Stephen King says in on writing is that your your um, your life is not uh, a subject. I'm, your life is not a support system for your art. You know, your your life is your life, and your art is something that you do. Yeah. You know, it's just a little. It's this thing that you do, but your life is what you're you're here for. 
Yeah, it's a thing that keeps coming up on these panels that, you know, everyone asks, what's the spec I should write? What's the <laughs> thing I should write? It's, you know, when you have the time, the spec you should write is the one that's from you that you care about. I mean, you're going to spend, let's, let's say, for example, just even a spec pilot, you're going to spend a month or two coming up with the idea minimum. You're going to spend a few weeks outlining. You're going to spend a month or two writing. If you're fast, you probably have something that right there is three months of your life. And then if you're lucky, you get to spend the next seven years of your life, eight years of your life on it. So you'd better freaking love it when you sit down. And that's always the test when someone brings me an idea or when I come up with something myself. Do I, is there enough here to, to make me excited for seven years? Because if there isn't, or at least five, I mean, if there isn't, why, why do this? You know, and, and, and so that was, that's always a test when someone gives me material. This uh, related to that, and I'm, I am assuming all of you guys have been in the position to pitch your own shows, um, which, you know, it's one thing to come up with the concept that you care about, but it's another to try to convey that in a room. Tell me about uh, your experience in pitching and any advice you might have, and we'll start with you again, Liz. Um, well... Yeah, pitching is definitely a kind of skill in and of itself. Like, you can be obviously a great writer and a horrible pitcher. Um, But I don't know. I I guess I'm trying to think. Um, I mean, I have, like, very specific things that I'm, I'm, like, super methodical, so I'm kind of dorky when it comes to pitching. Well, tell us about that because everyone does it in kind of a different way. I I pitch... um, I pitch everything exactly the same, basically. <laughs> like I have like a, like a formula, and it is my pitch formula, and it usually works out okay. But um, you know, I always go in with kind of that log line that's like it's this meets this, and then um, you know I try to very briefly, obviously, say the concept in a concise way, like I just said with Life Unexpected, or I just pitched a show that. Um, I just pitched a pilot that's like an adaptation of a movie. So, you know, it was easy to kind of talk about. But then the thing I really try to focus on, I think, is... Is it something, something, ghost protocol? (laughs) (laughs) No. (laughs) Don't tell. Um, um, Bridesmaids. uh, (laughs) Bridesmaids, too. Ghost protocol. It's bridesmaids this year. (laughs) I should have. Um, But, uh... Um, then I try to, to do what we're saying, which is like spend a little bit of time in the pitch really talking about um, why it's the idea is resonant to me specifically. So I think that that's always a great way. It's kind of like, why tell the story? Why, why should it be out there in the world? Why are you the person to write it? What about your perspective makes your take on it unique? Because it's true, you have to, you know, when you do a pilot, you obviously, there's it's such a pressure cooker that you're like, you know, they're like, where's season one going? You're like, I don't fucking know. I don't even know how I thought of this. Like, you're like, I have no idea. Hire so, me a writing staff. I'll right. figure it out. Yeah, you're like, well, hopefully the eight people I hire will figure that out because I have no clue. But, but even if you don't know where exactly the stories are going, you know, plot-wise and what are going to be the, you know, all the things they want, uh, promotable moments. But, um, um, you know, to, to, I always call it the heart box. Like, what, what is at the heart of each story? What is what is at the heart of each character? And I think in the pitch, especially trying to concisely concisely say who the characters are and kind of what their Achilles' heel is, or what's their obstacle or challenge. What's the thing that um, keeps them from getting what they want? With Life Unexpected, it would be you know this girl, this dorky girl, got knocked up by this hot guy in high school, and she can never get over the fact that he. Um, 
could have cared less about it, that he was dismissive, that he didn't take responsibility, that he left her like hanging out to dry to deal with it all her own. And it really comes back to that's what her father did to her. Her father left her when she was, you know, and it's like how do you keep kind of peeling back the layers of the onions, but how, how, how is the way that somebody is and, and what they've become going to manifest itself in like present day conflict with everyone in their life? Um, so I think that's a big thing to kind of convey in the pitch. Like, how are all these characters, I always would say, like, how are they just going to, like, bump up against each other and continue to um, kind of tell compelling stories? So, anyway, it's not a deep pitch formula. <laughs> <laughs> it's simple, uh, but, um, you know, that's kind of my strategy usually. And then to just always talk about, um, with any idea, the scope of it and how it can go on for seasons and seasons and seasons. And it's all very obvious where it goes, and someone really smart will figure it out. But, um to show kind of that, you know, to show the world and that it's not a small world, that it's a that it's kind of a expansive world, I feel like is That's great. Key. That's a problem Dana. with the American system of television too, is that in Britain you'll have a great idea, but it's a it's a three season show. Mm-hmm. They call them series. Right. Mm-hmm. It's three series and then I think it's over. In America it's like it's a great idea, but what's episode three hundred and eleven? You're not just looking at something that's gonna limp along for eleven seasons, are you? I mean, <laughs> Yeah, Have you is. faced this in pitching? Have they asked, you know, what is year five? Um, they, uh, no. Uh, the last show, the pilot that I just, di- uh, the, that I did last year was so was was autobiographical to the point of being uncomfortable. And, <laughs> and I was always like, well, uh, unless I'm dead, I think stuff will be applicable. <laughs> um, and if I'm dead, it's not my problem. Um, and, uh, and, and, and the one I'm working on now is, uh, is I'm wrestling with that issue myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, what is the, I don't, you know, what, how does this go for X amount of time? Mm-hmm. I don't, you know, to me, I see it like a British series. Like, I think after five years, these people are done. <laughs> uh, are these half hours that you, you've been working in? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and is it I'm a- incapable of writing. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Definitely put that out there. <laughs> I'm actually comedy is hard. I'm illiterate. <laughs> um, but you have you have a background as a performer and are currently a performer. Yes, and um, a foreground as a performer. <laughs> yeah. um, do you think that gives you an advantage when you go into a room to pitch them? It gives me an, an it gives me an advantage and it's a disadvantage. And I actually um, I, I find this a lot when I work uh, when I go in as an actor as well because I'm known I'm, I'm, I mean I'm known as a writer. I, I, pretty well in the business um and the pitches are always entertaining um that's never a problem uh selling the show is is the concept and um and i what i'm usually go in and i'm hilarious for 25 minutes and then it's like the show was it's gonna wait it's, it's fine just <laughs> um so i always have to kind of do the i have to backwards engineer um uh, that um yeah. with auditioning for acting roles just as an aside i i i know that that, um, what's the word? I guess procedure or that uh, way of casting is so profoundly dysfunctional and has has nothing to do with what you do when you get the job. It's it's like speed dating is to the seventh anniversary of your marriage. Um, it's so hard to not take it to take it even remotely seriously that uh, I've uh, I nearly never get it. <laughs> because I, I, my contempt is so visible, I think. 
That's good advice for actors. <laughs> yeah, well, this isn't an actor's panel. Though. That's right. Get out. Um, but you know me, any excuse to wear makeup. <laughs> uh, Robert, I'm curious, particularly uh, in your pitching experience about pick, pitching. I assume people have come to you with properties and asked for your take yeah. on something. Yeah, a lot. How do you pitch your take on a property? Well, I mean, you, you, the first thing you do is really immerse yourself in the material. I read it. I tend to read it a few times. Uh, jot down some ideas. My, my always my first hope is I'll read it and be able to walk into the room and say, I don't have to tell you anything. Read the whatever. It's perfect. Let's go. You know, like Game of Thrones, for example, which is incredibly faithful to the source material. Unfortunately, that's rarely the case because television is its own particular beast, and if something was created for a graphic novel or a novel or whatever else, even a non-American format, it tends to have issues that that need addressing. So the first thing I always look for is what I call the engine of the story. What's what's going to drive this, again, 100 episodes? It, what What is so <coughs> great and unique about this that you can tell 100 hours of story about it? And usually that, again, brings my focus right away to the lead. Who is that person? What's he or she like? Why is that person someone who's interesting enough that you want to invite them into your home every day for an hour a week, you know, um, for, for, for many years? So that's, that's usually the next most important tool, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if those things feel like they're there, then I'll keep working on the world and the rules because a lot of the things that I get sent are genre. And a lot of the time the rules aren't particularly well thought out. You can do a lot. You, in 35 pages of a graphic novel, or what, you know, there's a lot of you can do a lot of smoke and mirrors. You can fly through a lot of stuff, and you don't have a network executive going like, "What are the rules?" Every time you turn something, what are the rules? What what are the rules? It's like, okay, all right, all right, I'll figure them out. Um, so that when I get even when I do my own material, like if I come up with an, an idea for a show, I put myself through the exact same process, and then the pitching process actually sort of lays that bare. So the first thing I always pitch is a hooky scene. Usually it's the teaser of the first episode. Um, I'm, I'm adding that to my... <laughs> and then I A pitch. scene where someone doesn't go to school. Now what if there isn't a scene in the show? Usually... Uh, Just from, anybody? From my, particular, my particular genre. It's a lot flashier than that, so I'm good. So um, sweaty. You know, space battle, you know. Dude wakes up. He's having nightmares about the war. He swings out of bed. He has no knee, he has no legs from the knees down. He's the guy you saw in the teaser. He has two human-looking legs sitting by the side of his bed. He sticks his stubs against the, the legs, and they weave themselves into his legs, and he stands up. He looks out the window, and the starship we just saw destroyed, and the teaser is being rebuilt out his window. Okay. That's the craziest Forrest Gump pitch I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah. That's the... Anyway, that's the pitch for my new pilot. So, so I pitch that, and then I start talking. I sort of give a general logline, what the show is, and then I go into the characters. And I start with the lead, and I talk about the lead for the longest amount of time. Then, like you're saying, all the supporting characters, how they clash, how their agendas are in harmony or in disharmony. Uh, and then I finish pitching the pilot. 
because now they know who everybody is. I pitch out the pilot, and then I talk about like three, four episodes down the road, general arc for the season, why this is the best thing ever invented by human beings <laughs> since Homer, and then I'm done. <laughs> what, That's great. What, what's interesting is if you're, it's so smart what you say, and when you do spend so much time on your main character, when you do get into that, the writing, coming up with other episodes, like bang, 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 the strength of the characters will dictate whether or not that's an easy or difficult process. And people who haven't done that work are at sea. Yeah. Um, I worked on the second season, I guess it was the second season, of, of Parks and Rec. And what was interesting about that was that Amy's character began to, and it wasn't anyone, it, the character just innately started to redefine itself. She's a much different character than she was now than she was then. And it, it, we were all sort of, they were all, I'm not, I'm not there anymore, but uh, they were all sort of sort of letting this happen and the show almost redefined itself. Yeah. And it was really interesting. And it was great that they were allowed to, you know, it's a tribute to the talent of those people that they were able to orchestrate that. So they were, they were orchestrating that change or they were aware of that change? They were aware or, of it and they were smart enough to let it work they were smart enough to let, let it work itself out. Yes, more. thank you. Well put. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I wouldn't use horse in an Amy Poehler analogy, <laughs> but that's you. That's not what I meant. Not Dana Gould. No, okay. no, I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying, and it's it's very interesting. And it's now I you know it's one of the best shows on television. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, let's talk. Let's back up a little bit and talk about uh, how you broke into this business as a writer. And Robert, we'll start with you here. But what is your background? Where do you come from, and what were some uh, early... I'm an army brat, like I said. Mm-hmm. My family settled in San Francisco when I was really young. Go Niners. Uh, and uh, I went to... I uh, came down to UCLA. Um, my thought at the time, and this will date me, was that I would get an electrical engineering degree, and then I would go work for Lucasfilm, building the motorized armatures and stuff for the X-Wing fighters. Uh, which don't exist anymore. Um, so it's a good thing that I hated engineering. <laughs> so, but you, so you were obviously from your youth into film and television and that kind of stuff. Yeah, I was a big fan of of obviously all this. I mean, you have to be you have to be passionate about television. If you're not passionate about television, honestly, get the fuck out. It's really a hard business, and you need to really love it uh, to stick with it. Um, so um, anyway, I, I was up at 3 o'clock in the morning doing math problems one night, and I realized that if I was continued to be successful, I would be doing math problems the rest of my life. So <laughs> I left. I went into the film department at UCLA. I got a bachelor's degree. I, wrote a, I, I did my first student film. It cost me $800, which at the time I didn't have. And then I um, wrote my first script, and I won 2500 bucks in a contest. And so I thought... Writing, <laughs> and then I didn't work for five. Didn't get a job for five years. I had an agent off of the the, the thing. So for five years, I had an agent. There was a writer strike, not the not the recent one. Dating. <laughs> um, what what was that first script, and how did you how did you know how to do it? My first script was called Paper Dragons. It was a romantic comedy set in Chinatown in San Francisco, where I had gone to grammar school. It was based on a. Uh, southern uh, country Chinese superstition that if one of your daughters dies unmarried, she will haunt you until you find her a groom. Uh, So what you do is you take a bunch of money, dowry money, you put it into a red envelope, and you throw it into the air. And whoever, whatever man finds that envelope and keeps the money has now married your ghost daughter, and you're good. (laughs) 
So, so that's the protocol. Yeah, now you know. Now you know. For marrying a ghost. Yes, that's pretty much it. It's pretty simple. So you're it is not far-fetched to say... A Chinese ghost. Let's be clear. Your, mo- the your French trip may not could have this. been called Paper Dragon Ghost Protocol. Ghost protocol. Yes. You're really dating this podcast. <laughs> uh, that in and of itself wow, is a hilarious a, statement. That was like a long <laughs> uh, And we thought these were forever. <laughs> this will be part of the uh, Nerdist Writers Panel <laughs> Classic <laughs> series. <laughs> anyway. Please go on, Robert. It's, it's about a tour guide, a white tour guide who partners with his best friend who's Chinese-American, and they basically run a scam tour of Chinatown, where the Chinese guy who doesn't speak any Chinese at all babbles Chinese nonsense, and the white guy translates, so it's very authentic. So he says a lot of, like, dim sum, you know, hagao, yet ye some say umlat chut, and he just, like, which is one, which is counting. <laughs> and, uh, and so the white guy finds the envelope, he, he's a nice guy, he brings it back to the jewelry store, and he meets the twin sister of the ghost, and he decides this is a great way to get in her pants by marrying her dead sister, and the dead sister is pissed. That's basically <laughs> That's the story. Um, so, so you got an agent off of this. I did. Never uh, sold and it. You sat around for five years trying to work. I sat around for five years. Um, my agent finally got me a pitch at Star Trek Next Generation. Uh, I went in. Uh, I the show was up and running already. The show was up and running. It was season four. Um, I went in. I pitched. Um, I didn't sell anything, but they invited me back because they, they seemed to like me. I went in and pitched again. Uh, they didn't buy anything. They invited me back. I went in with two ideas, one that I thought was a surefire sale and one piece of crap that I came up with the last minute. And I pitched the first one, very excited about it. They were totally into it. And then at the end of it, they said, uh, we're, to, we're shooting something just like that on, on, on stage right now. And I was at a couch, and I literally banged my head on the arm of the couch. I was so like, I was like, ah, oh, I'm doomed. All right, well, uh, Worf goes into the holodeck, and uh, Data is plugged into the computer to fix things, and suddenly every character in the holodeck, including the gunfighter Worf has to be, turns into Data. Sold! I was like, well, really? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I just ripped off Spectre the Gun. Uh, That was an original series episode, but... um, So they let me write that, and then they hired me onto Deep Space Nine. I'm curious about um, those five years when you weren't... When you weren't on, you know, on staff somewhere or anything... Uh, were you getting writing work? What were you doing in no. that time? Uh, I was a reader for um, ITC. They made the Muppets <laughs> and the Chucky movies. Uh, I was a uh, black market travel agent uh, for a company that bought and sold frequent flyer mileage. It wasn't really illegal. It just wasn't legal. <laughs> um, and then I, uh, <coughs> um, the truth is my mom passed away. Sold her house in San Francisco. I had a little tiny bit of money, not a lot, but just enough to live off of for like a year and a half. And so I quit my job. I had just started dating my, the woman who is now my wife. And I, like a week after we started dating, I said, you know what, I'm going to quit my job and just write full time and I won't have any job. And so we won't be going out on very many dates. And she said, okay. <laughs> Which is why I married her. Um, <laughs> um, sucker. <laughs> her, Wait, not um, me. <laughs> were, you, were you generating material in, mm-hmm. in that time? I wrote um, eight feature films. Before I got my first job, so yeah, uh, that was what I was doing. I was just writing features all day long. I thought I was going to be a feature writer, and it was a, a science fiction sort of uh, high-tech feature that got me into pitch to Star Trek. 
I, I wrote all kinds of different stuff, but I had gotten a lot of attention for this feature. I almost sold it to Kuroko, and they went bankrupt the second time in the middle of negotiations, so that sucked. Um, but this, that script got me enough attention and was good enough that they, that was what got me into pitch. That sample got me the assignment to write. Gotcha. Um, Dana, we, we uh, mentioned that you do have a background as a stand-up. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm curious, and, and you talked a little bit about your uh, entry into sitcom writing when you were on Chris's Nerdist podcast, yeah. uh, which was so fascinating. It was a great story. Tell these people briefly uh, so I can follow up with questions. Okay, yeah, very, <laughs> very, very briefly. I just had one quick question, if I could, ask Robert. So these you're you're buying other people's mile, miles. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. And then applying them to someone else. Yeah. So, you okay. basically you pay someone to use their frequent flyer mileage to buy tickets in someone else's name, and then you turn around and right. you sell those tickets to the person that you've redeemed. Right. Them so the miles appear to be what they are, but they are not really. The miles are their actual yes. miles that they're essential. It can't be done anymore. They put would a lot it, of would it be would it be? <laughs> it's very hard. Would I be far afield of saying that <laughs> these miles were ghosts? <laughs> <laughs> that would not be completely inaccurate. They are imaginaries. When buying and selling these <laughs> ghost miles, did you have to follow <laughs> some sort of system of rules or behavior? <laughs> Let me just pull a word out of the sky. <laughs> protocol. There was indeed a frequent flyer ghost protocol. <laughs> did Dana, you wear a hoodie? Okay. I Dana, did you're the one with the heart out. <laughs> okay. I know, I apologize. Um, That's the third callback anyway, I so know. he's done. This, <laughs> this, I know, it'll loop around yeah. again, right? You know, I could knock a Mora in. <laughs> That's it. Uh, all right. So I was a, uh, a, a, I've been a stand-up comedian since I was 17 years old. And uh, I had lived in San Francisco. Uh, I'm originally from Boston. had a great, great guns career as a stand-up comedian. Moved down here to L.A. And then you go through the, your talent now, and you're, we're going to develop a show for you. And this was in the early 90s, and Seinfeld was just getting going, and, and everybody... You know, everybody had a show, and it was the heyday of, the, of that business, and they were just shooting money at people in cannons. That's, uh, it's awesome. over. It's long gone now. It's, it's, uh, it's, it, it, was, it was great. It was fun while it lasted. Um, and I went through several uh, development seasons for Dana. <laughs> Dana's times. You know, really, it was, you know, I worked with, uh, I did... Um, I had, as I've said many times, I had my hand in more failed pilots than an Air Force proctologist. And I um, were you being teamed up with people too? I was always being material? teamed up with people. All of them, I will hap- happily say, have gone on to great success. Jace Richdale was a, a very popular, uh, well-known uh, writer. Linwood Boomer and I did a pilot called Nice Try, the aptly named. Uh, he went on. He went on to create Malcolm in the Middle, um, and then. Uh, I, I sort of got tired of people, of trying to explain myself to people. So I decided, I'll just write a pilot. I'll just, you know, I knew the formula. I, you know, I took a nice try, and I said it goes 21 pages, and then something stops, and then this new thing starts, and I knew enough. Um, and I wrote a pilot called World on a String, which was uh, basically uh, Seinfeld meets Pee-wee's Playhouse. Uh, it was a, a hyper reality with with a traditional with regular people in it, and uh, and uh, it got picked up and made uh, for Fox, and it should have gone, and uh, it didn't. 
but it was great. And I found over the course of that that the writing of it, and I, I ended up writing it with Jay Kogan, uh, who was just leaving The Simpsons uh, and getting ready to go on to Frasier, and uh, he uh, did the pilot with me. And I found I really enjoyed doing the writing part of it, and then the acting thing was always like, oh, the fun was over. You know, the writing of it was really fun. So I thought, well, you know, I, I don't mind doing that as long as I can still do stand-up, uh, which I, I go hinky if I don't do. Um, I'll be a writer. I'd met my, you know, the girl that was going to, the woman that was, sorry, was going to be my <laughs> wife, um, uh, the woman that, was, that would uh, eventually uh, make the tragic mistake of marrying me. And, um, and I thought, well, I'll just be a writer. And, uh, and I, I did a couple of, like, started on something here, starting something there, and then as long as I could still do stand-up and go out on stuff, I was fine. And then I sort of, George Meyer, who was a writer on The Simpsons, they heard that, I heard you were looking for a writer's gig. Would you like to come over to The Simpsons and just do like a day a week? Just come in on Tuesdays, work on punch-up jokes. So they just wanted you in the room. Just as a, uh, sort of they call a joke guy. Just like a guy that knows how to write a hard joke. Um, and uh, I did that for like four, four months or six months, just on Tuesdays, and then I'd go out on the road, uh, you know, Wednesday through Sunday. And... Was that a strange oh. adjustment for you being in that room, or was yeah. it just like it's hanging a out big, with comics? It's a giant adjustment yeah. because this would, you know, being the focus of 300 people's attention every night leads you to feel you're pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> and then to be the low man, the lowest of the low on the totem pole of the best comedy on television, <laughs> it really is just like don't check your ego at the door. The night before, drive your ego out to a field. Have it, have it dig a hole, shoot it, put it in the hole. Um, so what did you learn in those first four months? It must have been a crash course for it. Was, yeah, it was terrifying. Uh, I learned how the sort of the... I learned the trigonometry of their jokes, which was the... What you think is the joke is actually the setup to the real joke, which was... It's an interesting way that they'll do it. Um, uh, and... Uh, and just sort of learn how the show works and, and how a room works. And as you said, you know, you go into these rooms, so much of this procedure is just being cool to be with. Yeah. You know, as you, yeah, you know, yeah. it's just, you just have to be. It's hugely important. Yeah. Someone they want to be around. Yeah. I mean, you're going to be with these people. I mean, you're going up for a job where conceivably you could be with the same people 50, 60, 70 hours a week sometimes. Yeah. You know, you better be the kind of person that you can stand to be in a room with for that. Yeah. I myself have an elaborate false persona that I create. (laughs) (laughs) Had I gotten this opportunity when I was 23, I would not have been a success, I fear. Um, And, uh, and then what the great thing about it is, and it's the reason a lot of people really hate me. um, uh, It was at the end of my term there as my first contract uh, as a sort of a joke guy, uh, Mike Scully, who ran the show. It's one of my, Favorite people on earth for this reason. Uh, no, no, not for this reason. He's an excellent human being. But uh, he came in and goes, uh, oh, hey, you know what? I think your contract expired last week. <laughs> and I was like, oh. And I was literally like. <laughs> and he just went, you want to come every day? And I went, yeah. And he went, oh, okay. I'll make a call. Call your agent. And then, he, no, it was great. And this is the reason I love Mike. As he, he left and he just stopped and he went. Sucker. <laughs> and, and I like, made it like, and then I stayed there like seven years, and mm-hmm. and uh, 
Biggest mistake of my life. Sure. <laughs> Clearly. Um, did, did your role change over those seven years? Yeah, you... Um, well, what's fun... Yes. Uh, I started the show as a guy uh, who was... I, I, I'll say this. Um, as a, a guy who was uh, engaged and uh, living in a house with his fiance, and ended it uh, a married guy with two kids. You know, so I grew, I became an adult, I think, over the course of that show. And, uh, and uh, I went from, like, the joke guy all the way, I was one of the co-exec producers, so I basically knew how to run, uh, you know, how to run a room, how to, how to, you know, move the episode along. You know, you learn, you know, how to, how to break a story and then how to break a Simpsons story, which is, which is interesting, which is also different. Let's and, talk about that for a second. How um, is it different from breaking a traditional sitcom? Uh, the Simpsons has a very specific sort of arc. Now the show is four acts. It used to be three acts. Um, but they found that they can get another 11.3 seconds of advertising. <laughs> um, so we might as well jeopardize the most successful animated venture in the history of mass communication. <laughs> we can hear more from the Zagnut people. Um, the first act is a sketch that has nothing to do with the story. And then the end of the first act starts your story, which goes into the second act. And then the third act, you bend the story as forcefully as you can without breaking it. But it should be as, as, as drastic a bend as you can manage to. Uh, can you give us an example from maybe one, from one of your well, own the, Yeah, the first episode was the one because we actually changed the third act because it wasn't drastic enough. So the first act I went through was really, um, uh, the first episode I wrote was really uh, uh, ended up in, on, the, on life support. It was really like in like 11 pieces on the operating table. Like, does every, is there a heart before we start? <laughs> you know, it was really, um, the first act was, if I, can, if I can remember, unless I'm conflating episodes, the first act was Bart dug a hole in the backyard for no reason. And nobody knew why. And it was just sort of a meditation on the fun kids have when they're digging a hole. And uh, then at the end of that, yeah, that, that was that one. And then uh, Homer had to go back to bartending school for a refresher course. So uh, and Homer took over Moe's. And Moe went to bartending school, which was an ivory-laden college like Harvard with... Um, uh, who was the guy that published the Paris Review? Uh, George thank you, George Plimpton, a George Plimpton-esque dean, um, who, thanks to George Meyer, in my episode, committed the first on-screen suicide in the history of The Simpsons, <laughs> which Matt Groening reminded me of after the table read, 13 seasons without a suicide. Thanks a lot. Uh, then, in the end of the... Uh, and then halfway through the second act, um, Homer uh, Mo comes home, turns the bar into M, a high-toned Ian Schrager-like restaurant. Homer opens up a private bar in his garage, like my dad did. <laughs> and then in the third act, they all go turkey hunting. <laughs> <laughs> While R.E.M. plays in the garage. <laughs> Uh, 22 minutes. So what... <laughs> a lot of stories. Do you remember what... Just the, as a quick aside, yeah, um, uh, 
I, want, I had a great joke planned for Michael Stipe where I went in and they were there and okay, I had it all planned and I went, okay, um, hey Michael, uh, this is a recording studio. I don't want you to be intimidated by anything. Just get into the mic and don't be afraid of it. And he goes, oh, okay, whatever you need. And I was like, no, come on. <laughs> <laughs> you dick. dick. Mike Mills laughed to his credit. Yeah. So, well, Stipe, notoriously the funniest guy in all Yeah, yeah. a hoot. <laughs> and, and such an enunciator. Yeah, really. right. uh, just a yeah, clarity of diction. The guy you, <laughs> you want doing voiceover. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you remember what the that third act was that didn't bend quite hard enough? Uh, yes, I, it was an extrapolation of uh, a Homer uh, running a bar out of the house. It went, it went on and on, and, and, and oddly enough, it was the stuff that, uh, it was the stuff that brought me into the episode to begin with. It was the stuff that I pitched of like when your dad is a bartender, that your life is really bizarre, <laughs> um, and uh, that uh, ended up getting cut away. And then it was this other thing. I of the of the episodes that I wrote, it's the funniest one, and it has. My, one of my favorite joke, one of my favorite jokes that that I wrote in it, uh, and, uh, but it was as I said, it wasn't the best one. I, the best one as a story was the the China one, but I thought just in terms of laughs, it has it has uh, the dean going into the lake and uh, talking to Mo, just going, "Oh Mo, I love the way the leaves land on the water, <laughs> how the sun reflects on the sun, on the surface." I'm dying, Mo, <laughs> and then. Uh, it was a George Meyer joke, and uh, it just made me laugh so very hard when he walks into the pond, and uh, Mo goes, hey, don't you want your bathing suit if you're going swimming? And then a very long, oh, 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 oh for just as long as it should have gone. And uh, yeah, it made me laugh a lot. It was a funny program. They do well. They do nice. Liz. Uh, it seems like you kind of worked your way up in a more traditional way, at least uh, according to the things I read. Yes. Uh, but from an assistant to other things. But even before that, you knew you wanted to be in this business. Where did where did you come from? How did you know this? Yeah, I um, yeah, I I did work my way up. Kind of, I'm very methodical. I'm no genius. Just follow simple steps. So uh, I knew. Um, I well, I grew up in Dallas. Texas, and then I moved to Guilford, Connecticut, uh, for high school, and I was always very interested in um, acting and performing, and I actually decided I wanted to be a soap opera star. That was like, <laughs> I, I, re- I That is a coincidence. I, <laughs> I decided, um, I got really into Days of Our Lives, and... Um, <laughs> Like, beyond into it. If anyone is my age, it was uh, when Hope died over the vat of acid. Uh, Cruise of deception. Yeah. So I got really into Days of Our Lives, and I was like... This is the great, like, I, I don't know, I like, didn't know, I'm going off on a day's tangent, but like, I didn't know anything about, I didn't even know soap operas existed, and then, and it led me to all these things, like, I was like, oh, the first time I have sex, like, I'm supposed to be, like, scooped up, and like, laid down on a bed, and when I was 15, I went and bought, like, lingerie to wear, like, under my, you know how I'm, I'm like, people would, like, rip off their nurses' outfits, and they'd have, like, then I was like, oh, I need that, like, I need, like, I need, like, a slip, a sexy slip under my clothes, like, that's what people do, right, so. I was super into it, and I was like, I am going to be a soap opera star. So I um, 
went to Ithaca College uh, a lot, woohoo, um, um, because they had a soap opera semester, so that I was like, <laughs> I am going to star in semester. Yeah, this is like so insane. Um, and uh, I don't know, it's like I got there and I like forgot about semesters. I, for- I don't know, I don't know what I was doing. I like joined the crew team. I was like, I don't know. And... Um, <laughs> And, oh, I know, it, but I had this, like, mean director. And I, this woman was, like, not very, she wasn't very encouraging. And I was, like, maybe I, maybe, I, I don't know, maybe I'm not cut out to be a soap opera star. Like, maybe I'm not good enough. And sad. Heart, heartbreak. Um, but I thought, what if I could be a soap opera writer? That's what I could do. So I thought, you know, maybe I could, whatever. So I started taking writing classes at school, and um, I had to pick a concentration, and I picked writing, and I was, you know, very fixated on it. And Ithaca had a program where you could, like, come out to L.A., so I got an internship on General Hospital, which a lot of people from Days had since moved to General Hospital. I was, like, beyond in heaven. Um, Anyway, and then when I came out here uh, to move, the only show that needed interns was Dawson's Creek. And I was like, it's not a soap opera, but... Um, <laughs> I'll consider it. <laughs> it's, it's not. <laughs> I think everyone here has Sorry, questions. I mean, it's, not a, it's not a good soap opera. <laughs> it's not on in the day. <laughs> Put it that way. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I ended up, and it was funny because I'd heard, like, it was in 98, I graduated college in 98, and it was when, like, the WB was just starting to kind of get going, and I remember when I was doing crew, we had someone in our boat who was always like, we have to get home, Dawson's Creek is on bottom, and we were like, all right, sister, sister, calm down back there, like, we were like, okay, we were like, WB, like, what is on the WB? Um, but I ended up getting a job on Dawson's, and it was, or I got an internship there that led to, um getting a job down in post, which I also knew nothing about post. And I used to, I had this boss who used to like, um, just fuck with me all the time. And she would like, she would send me on like a really important errand and she would be like, I need you to go get a box of medium sized sprocket holes. And I didn't know that that was like, I didn't know anything. I know nothing about film either. I don't know anything. I know about days of our lives. That's all I know. So I was like, Okay, so I'd, like, go to Encore, Santa Monica, wherever. I had to go pick up dailies, and I'd be like, um, I'm also supposed to pick up a medium-sized box of sprocket holes. And they were like, okay, you know, and I was just be like, a lot of crying in my car. But um, anyway, uh, I learned what they were and, um, you know, whatever, survived that job and um, just started working my way up, way up. And it was at a time on Dawson's when it was, like, Kevin Williamson, obviously. Um, Julie Pleck, who's one of my dear friends, who now has, you know, gone on to crazy success. And uh, these are all the people I was, like, getting tapes and lunch and coffee for. And it was Mike White, uh, Jenny Bix, John Feldman, Greg Berlanti was a staff writer. Um, It was just this room of, like, now I think about it in retrospect, and I'm like, all these people who would be, you know, 10, 15 years from, from then kind of... I don't know, the people who have all these amazing shows on the air and are just, you know, these key voices in television. And um, I loved it. And I would sit down and post, and I would hear the writers, and they, like, wouldn't be doing anything. They'd be, they'd be convincing, you know, it would be like Mike White convincing the new writers that they had to become Scientologists if they wanted to be on staff, and people are freaking out. You know, they'd be playing Uno, and I was like, I want to be a writer. Like, that's what I, forget, you know. 
maybe I don't need Days of Our Lives. Maybe I could be a writer on Dawson's Creek. Like, you know, so um, anyway, I kind of, I wrote a, a freelance, I was given an opportunity to do a freelance there. It was terrible. But, um, I how, mean, the opportunity was wonderful. The episode's terrible. But how did you, did you kind of make yourself known from your position in post? Where you, I did, hey, I'm over yeah. Post. I tried to, like, hang down at the writer's end. I was like, hey, guys. Like, barely in post. I was like, I'm really. Um, but uh, I would hang down at the writer's office, and um, we were all, it was one long hallway. And um, they, they knew, you know, because I'd been an intern for them, that I wanted to get back there. And so when there was a script coordinator position, that's where you, like, coordinate the script. Um, <laughs> you knew what you were welcome. doing. You knew what you were doing. You were flirting with Mike White. I was. Mike White. I do love him. Um, but uh, yeah, I, yeah, I flirted my way back down to that end and then um, just kind of did all the assistant jobs. I was a script coordinator. I was a writer's assistant. I just wanted to do you know, any job there was basically to stay and um, was lucky enough to get this opportunity to write a freelance. Um, and it was a bad boat race episode. It was really bad. Um, wait, wait, boat boat race boat. as natural boats? Yeah. Or is that an analogy? <laughs> no, sadly. <laughs> it's no euphemism. It was a real boat race. It was was not... it about a coxswain? <laughs> I know. I know. I could have used my skills. If you find, your... <laughs> if you find no. yourself at prison and you're invited to a boat race, don't, don't go. go. And never volunteer to be the coxswain. <laughs> right. I know. It's a terrible yeah. name. Nor do you want a hot fudge Sunday. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, I, I was I was there for many years, and um, once I kind of realized uh, the sad reality that I was not going to get hired on staff, and there were no more assistant jobs for me left to do, I, uh, you know, whatever, quit, not dramatically, just said I was done, and... Um, then I actually watched the entire series of 90210 for six months on the money I had gotten from my episode. And that's when it was on FX, twice in the morning and twice in the afternoon. And then once, and I was like, okay, now I understand everything. And once that was done, I was like... Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> I understand how the world works now. <laughs> Donna Martin does graduate. No, I was, I was, I got it all. And I, um, and then luckily, thank God, Maggie Friedman, who's a writer on Dawson's, um, nice like invited me to dinner and she was like I'm on once uh once sorry I was almost said I was just on once upon a time I was on once Maggie said I was on once and again and um my boss Winnie needs an assistant and she was like do you want to meet with her and I'm like sure yeah so I and I had flown to New I don't know anyway I was I remember I was on a plane and my mom IMDB'd her and I was like I don't know I'm meeting with some Winnie lady and um and then she was like started reading me her credits on my drive to go interview with her and I'm like oh my god I'm like I'm like I didn't realize I was like you know my so-called life and so I was beyond excited and I lucked out in getting the job and working for Winnie was like a, a complete dream she um was doing Wicked at the time so I got to you know be involved with that and then um you know, I would just sit with her. She had like kind of like a writing hut, and I would just sit with her and read my so-called life scripts while she was writing. And I had never, you know, at the time, I'm just going off on a little bit of a tangent, but like I'd never put together, I'd never met a writer, and I'm saying it badly, I'd never loved a character so much and then met the person who wrote that character. And so, um, and I never had realized how much of, someone's voice needed to be in that character and as soon as I started talking to Winnie I was like 
oh, Winnie's Angela. Like, every time Winnie would pontificate on something, it would sound like Angela Chase. And, and at the time, I was, you know, I was, I don't know, I was, like, thinking maybe I should, like, teach kindergarten. Or I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know why I'm writing. I don't have anything to write about. I'm not even really that good a writer. And... Um, and I said, I remember saying, like, I didn't know what to write about. And she was like, I said, I don't feel like I have a voice. I don't know what it is, and I don't know what to write. And she said, um, why don't you write about a girl who doesn't know who, what her voice is? And, and I did. Um, and that led to kind of the first pilot I'd ever written. And was it, that The Little Mermaid? It was The Little Mermaid. <laughs> <laughs> for me no uh yes and uh no what what was that pilot and what became of it the, nothing became of it but I, I i wrote it and it it helped um it helped a little i mean it helped lead to the it, it helped me find a voice it's funny because i've gone back like when you're like cleaning out your hard drive you're like blah blah, blah. and i was like oh it was, it was called acting normal and i was like oh acting normal i was like Phew. and i like opened it up and i was like the sad thing reading it was I was like, God, I don't feel like I've evolved that much as a right. I mean, I wrote it a long time ago. I was like, I feel like I should be better. Like, reading it, I was like, this isn't that bad. And then I was like, maybe that's bad that it doesn't feel like that. But um, I was like, this should be terrible. Um, but what was interesting was, I mean, I've become hopefully a better writer, but my actual voice hasn't changed that much. And it was just the concept was like, um, it was kind of when, like, the OC was, you know, had just premiered, and it was kind of the concept was, like, a Misha Bartonish like, character, a girl who basically had grown up acting all her life, and she'd only ever had, like, people put words in her mouth, and she'd never spoken for herself, and so it was about, like, she basically tried to kill herself, had a drug overdose, and got, like, shipped back to live with her dad in Connecticut, and it was all about high school and, you know, how being normal is just as hard as being a famous celebrity. Um, it, was, it wasn't earth-shattering, but it was cute and fine, and um, it helped a lot. And, and then kind of from there, um, uh, I... Oh, I... I I had met on, I was, I was going out staffing. I had a writing partner. We, we were going out staffing, not getting hired, but trying. And um, I met on the show American Dreams. And that was a show on NBC um, um, in, like, 2002. And uh, it was about a girl um, who her dream was to be on American Bandstand. And it took place in the 60s. And it was actually, it was an amazing, amazing show. I loved it. And I remember watching the pilot. And this girl, it was Brittany Snow, played this character, Meg. And her face watching Bandstand was how I felt watching the pilot. Like, I was just like, I'd been, like, on so many staffing meetings. And, like, I can't believe I didn't get Crossing Jordan. And, like, <laughs> crying in my room and being like, I, I don't love forensics. And, you know, like, whatever. And, and I just had so many terrible, and I was like, how the hell do people get hired? Like, what do you have to do? Who do you have to have sex? Like, who do you, like, what do you have to do? And so, I was about to say, who do you have to have sex with? I would never do that. But, um, but, but finally, um, I saw this show, and I was like, oh my God, like, this, this is it. And I didn't get hired. They were like, no, thank you. But I was like, I will do anything. I will be a PA again. I will be a writer's assistant. I'll do anything you want. I have to, just have to be a part of the show. And so, that was the show that ended up, I was hired as an assistant and um, um, eventually was given a freelance opportunity on that show. That one I felt much more prepared for. And I think, whereas with Dawson's, I was like, eh, I'm writing a script, whatever. <laughs> like with this one, I was like, oh, no, no, this is like, clutch, like, this is serious. Like, I cannot fuck this up. Like, this has to be the thing that gets me on staff because um, it just has to be. Like, I, these opportunities don't come along. So what so. did you do differently? How did you approach that script differently? Um... I, you know, 
I'm trying to think. I mean, I, I was writing it alone, which was a little bit different because, you know, the, the pressure was on a little bit, but it also was weirdly freeing. Like, I think almost not having someone to check in with on every little thing helped. It was actually, like, bad circumstances around the script. I just walked in on my boyfriend, like, massively cheating on me. I was supposed to go away for Thanksgiving with him. I was, like, completely, I'd scaled a wall. Like, it was a bad, bad scene. There was, like, <laughs> there was a bad bikini wax involved. There was a lot that went on. It was, like, it was, it's a long story. There was a lot that had happened. It was bad, but let's just say... I'm intrigued by the concept <laughs> of massively cheating. <laughs> yeah. Was, was she, was was she, she cheating with Chaz Bono? Or is that... <laughs> it just, you know what it seemed, it was, it was just a bad scene. So anyway, we had, we were going away for Thanksgiving together. I was like, you're an awful cheater. I'm obviously going away to where we were going and we're splitting it and paying for it. And he was like, I'm going away to where we're going. And it turned into this stubborn, like, standoff where we both went. And I was like, you, and I was just in tears. And I was like, you have to help me. Like, you have to, like, basically he was like, if if you let me go, I will do everything for you. And I was like, I'm going to set up my printer. I'm going to write for 20 hours a day. I was like, I'm not going to stop for food and I'm never talking to you again. You know, whatever. (laughs) So I had this kind of teary. I basically was like, this is all I have. This has to work out. I must become a writer or die. Like, I was like, this is serious. So I took it very seriously. And I was in just a bad, bad emotional place, which I think really helped. Um, And it worked. I got on staff. And then I was like, see you, sucker. Bye. (laughs) So, um, uh, yeah, it was good. So, uh, anyway, whatever. Lasted on staff. And then... And that kind of led to the subsequent... Blah, blah, blah. Where we are now. But did you bump into him while you were away together, not (laughs) together? Oh, yeah. No, we shared. We were in the same... We were in the same bed. We were Uh, like right there. Literally bumped into him. That is... Yeah, I bumped into him. That is an orgasm of dysfunction. (laughs) It was bad. Oh, yeah. It gets worse from there. There's that is a lot a, of... It's a complicated... That is a bukkake of bad boundaries. <laughs> it was bad. It was bad. <laughs> anyway, that was that. That's a different panel. That's another pilot. That's <laughs> <laughs> another pilot. Um, I'm, still, I'm still going. Come on, okay. Please. <laughs> uh, I have uh, one million more questions for you guys, but we should take a few from this group. Um, please recall that questions begin with an H or a W, not with an I. Uh, Who has one? I know my husband's story, but I'm kind of um, curious about Liz's story about moving back and forth between being a head writer and also um, going back on staff on Revenge and how you're managing your relationships to be able to do both so that people don't feel like you're competing but you're part of a team. Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. I'd like to hear your husband's story of that. (laughs) We don't know it. But yeah, Liz, go ahead. It's hard, I will say it is really challenging. Like my one of my biggest career challenges, aside from just breaking into having a career, has probably been going from running my own thing to being back on staff. Um, it's hard because you're. I mean, on one hand, you're so relieved. You're like, not my problem. You're like, <laughs> I'm you're going like, home. You're like, didn't crack the story by the end of the day. Someone will figure it out, not me. You know, or like when people are like, you know, some outline doesn't work. You're like, mm, 
yeah, saw that coming. You know, you're just like, hi. Like, Can I just, just interrupt for a sec? Were you, uh, after Life Unexpected, you were uh, in a deal somewhere so that you kind of were placed in positions? Sort of. I, I had a deal during Life Unexpected. I had a deal with CBS, but the deal happened to last the same amount of time as Life Unexpected. And so when Life Unexpected ended, I went to ABC. Okay. I did a pilot for them at the beginning of this year that um, nothing happened with, which was fine. And then I was on Once Upon a Time, and then I switched over to Revenge. Okay. So it's kind of been... And they can kind of place you, yeah, like wherever they think they need you. Um, or theoretically think they need you. <laughs> you may not be that helpful. Um, but uh, um, anyway, it was, it was definitely hard. I, I think I didn't real. I, I think a part of me thought, oh, I'll be relieved to not be responsible, to not, you know, have kind of the weight on you. Because when you're running a show, there's just so much... Um, I don't know how people even keep plants alive and run a show. Like, I couldn't do anything. Like, finally, my, my, the writing staff finally had to, like, have an intervention with me, and they were like, can you just get someone over to your house to, like, change your light bulbs? Because I was like, <laughs> I can't. I was like, my whole place was dark. I had, like, boxes stacked on it. I was like, ah. Like, it just becomes very daunting, and you feel like you can't, you know, you're sleeping, like, four hours a night. Um, so I was kind of looking forward to not having that. But then as soon as I got on staff, I was like, Oh no! Like this is like this is hard. Like you're you know how you want to break story. You know how like well that's not what I would do, but okay. You know there's definitely um, and you have to really um, and, and one thing that I hadn't learned since I've since having now been on two shows like have am in the process of learning hopefully uh, better than kind of where I started is. Um, really listening to what the showrunner wants because I kind of growing up on American Dreams Jonathan Prince was very um, he wanted everybody to be very passionate and very like poke and prod ideas and and he didn't want to move on until he kind of knew everyone was on board it wasn't kind of the mentality of like this is what we're doing get on board it was like even though I think he wanted to have that mentality it kind of drove him crazy which I'm like that too like I'm like but I want you to like me even though I'm like whatever this is what we're but I'm like but do you like it you know so um I I want that too and I and I am the type of person that really wants people to think like What's the best? Somebody was telling me, you know, you have to kind of sometimes decide when you're on staff, are you trying to please the showrunner or are you trying to please the show? And, of course, the best is when you're doing both simultaneously. Um, But I come from a very, like, pleasing the show mentality. And so I think there's been a little bit of an adjustment of, like, oh, really needing to listen and and just thinking, like, how can I help this person – and be a support in the way that they want to be helped, not necessarily in the way I would do it. Or, or the in the way, way you think they need you. Exactly. Sometimes they don't need you that way. They don't. <clears throat> yeah, or in the way I would want to be helped if it were me. So it's, it's been an adjustment. Um, um, and it's hard, but at the same time, it's, it's freeing, and there is that feeling of uh, being able to walk away a little more, you know? Was there any agents tend to push people? You're either a staffer staffing yeah. person or you're a pilot person but I'm noticing right. for people to have longevity they have to have both yeah. so how did you negotiate making your agent be able to say hey I'm good with put, parking you on a show for four or five right. years or, and also having you work on pilots and having and then negotiating right. that politically mm-hmm. with your head writer so I'm curious about yeah. that I'm actually curious yeah. about that from all three yeah. of you because I imagine you've sort of had the same experiences in developing your own stuff as well as being staffed on shows but go yeah. ahead Oh, I mean, luckily I have a development deal where when I get placed on a show, they know that I'm going to... Um, that I'm going to go off and develop. So, like, Revenge, for instance, you know, definitely gave me that time to really focus on uh, my pilot. Um, 
But it is. It's a bummer. I mean, we're going to hear on pilots in the next week or two. And, like, I'm writing the next episode on revenge. And they're kind of like, are you going to be here or not? It, it's disconcerting, you know. Um, so it's, it, it is a kind of a hard negotiation. There are a lot of rules where you can't develop, you know, on a first-year show or, or things like that. But I don't know what, you, what your experiences yeah, no, have been. True. Yeah, I mean, it, it helps tremendously. I mean, it's basically impossible unless the studio is the same. Unless the, right. And the network hopefully is the same, too. Uh, then you have a little more leeway because you have the people who are actually writing the checks saying this, you, he's, yeah. it's a priority for him to do these two things. I mean, it's basically impossible otherwise, and most of the time they will put a writer in your contract saying you can't do it. Yeah. So you just – the advantage of what, working on like short order shows, which I mostly do cable, so there's like 13 episodes. So usually I do those 13 episodes, and yeah. then I sit down, I write either a feature or a pilot uh, until mm-hmm. I get on the next show mm-hmm. or a novel. Anyone want to buy a novel? <laughs> <laughs> Only if we can develop it. Why? <laughs> yeah, it's really good. Uh, <laughs> uh, Dana, I imagine you know your representation saw you as someone who would develop shows, but was there ever the push to? I did staff to- for a very sm- short amount of time until I got on The Simpsons, and then <clears throat> I left the I left The Simpsons <clears throat> because I found I, I I just felt that I had done it, mm-hmm. and I really it's hard to do other things. Uh, when you're doing a show that's that time-consuming, and I really did miss performing, which is sort of like the the thing that I'm the best at. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I don't. They don't really think of me as somebody open to staffing, and uh, I hope uh, that continues. I mean, it's case by case. Like Deep Space Nine was 26 episodes a year, and there were five writers. So, and we had a two-week hiatus every year, and we just rolled right into the next. And I did that for five years in a row. So I didn't write anything but Deep Space Nine for five years. There's just no possible way you could do right. it. From how, no time. On Andromeda, how many uh, uh, episodes a year was that? 22, and the initial order was for 44 episodes. And once again, there were uh, there was four writing entities. Two of them were teams. So it was the, what is that? I'm losing my math. Is that leaving me? Yeah, six, six writers. Wow. And so again... That was another situation where there was just no, there was no possible time. Dresden Files, while I was on show, I was, I was running the set as well up in Toronto, and I was working like 100 hours a week. So when you're doing that, there's no possible way you can. There's just no right. Uh, I think we have time for one more question. Does anybody have one? So you were just saying that you worked like 100 hours a week on mm-hmm. that show. How do you balance your writing life and that passion with I had no regular life. life? I was in Toronto. <laughs> That's a great question. It was winter. Uh, my wife was in Los Angeles. I worked uh, about 16 to 17 hours a day during the week. And then I worked uh, another um, 10 hours a day on the weekends. And uh, the rest of the time I slept. Yeah, how do you guys go attempt this work-life balance? Is there, is there any way? I, I mean, definitely when you're running a show, I mean, same thing. I would, like, approach the – I think I would sleep about four hours a night – and the weekends I would approach as like, oh, my God, I can get up at 5 a.m. and I can work until 10 p.m. And it's there's nobody, nobody will interrupt <laughs> me. I mean, it was, it was intense. And it's like I used to say, like, if, you, if your only job as a showrunner were to just show up at your desk at, like, 9 a.m. and wait for shit to happen, that would take up your whole day, let alone, like, rewriting, being in the room, you know, flying up to set. And, and I think um, – Post, casting. Post. Yeah, and it's funny because, you know – you start out and you're just writing, and then all of a sudden they start shooting. And I remember feeling like, all of a sudden, like, oh, 
oh no, like shooting, like, oh, this is a whole, and then all of a sudden, um, you know, you get your first cut and you're like, oh no, like there's a third phase of this job. And I remember saying like, is there a fourth thing that I'm forgetting? Like, I'm going to die. Like, I can't do, like it was, it's definitely, but then it's your passion and you love it. And it's like for that amount of time, um, I mean, Life Unexpected was, in a way, its shortness was nice because it was manageable, but it was, like, it was so important to, like, foster a certain environment and to just have it be kind of what I had dreamed it would be, that it was, like, there's nothing I, I, I couldn't imagine having anything else to put my time into, so, I don't know, at the time, I didn't have a lot of other stuff going on, so now it would probably be harder to balance, but um, it definitely, it, it feels like, almost impossible as opposed to just being on staff where you're like see ya <laughs> it's an odd version yeah it's an odd version of the peter principle where you do so well as a writer they promote you to a point where you have no time to write at all <laughs> right <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah that, that is the upside of being on someone else's show and not being the head writer it's like after Dresden Files, I did a I did like ten weeks on forty four hundred, and my contract was literally for like twenty hours a week, and it was like the complete opposite. I yeah. would show up when I wanted to, eat lunch, <laughs> sit in the writers' room for a little while, bang out the script, tell some stories. <laughs> hey, it's five o'clock. I'm out of here. You know. <laughs> so it, it, there's there's a big advantage to not being the head writer, but then again, being the head writer is where you get to actually have your hands on the steering wheel the whole time. So that's you know that's huge too. Yeah, you have to balance, and you do have to find a way to make it work. I mean, I have three kids now, and uh, um, and uh, you know the the work that I do is with that in mind. My wife works a very time consuming job, and uh, so uh, uh, you know you have to we factor that in. And like the show that I'm producing would be, uh, you know, a short order show, and so like oh I can man- yeah that I could manage. And we can make that work. But otherwise, just like, you know, do you want to go work a million hours a week on helping out dad? No. <laughs> no I'd rather be one. <laughs> Not uh, really. <laughs> very briefly, uh, what are you guys watching on television? What are your current rooms talking about? What are you and your spouse talking about? Uh, Robert, let's start with you. I watch Revenge. Uh, <laughs> Homeland, yeah, because of my wife. Uh, it's co-viewing friendly, as they like to say. Uh, I watch um, Hell on Wheels, uh, Walking Dead, True Blood, Game of Thrones. The writers' room is all about Homeland these days. It's all oh, yeah. that's what they talked about. The writers' room just talked about Homeland. So any and sitcoms, Modern Family, um, people talk about. We have a lot of parents, so that one's got a lot of resonance. Mm-hmm. Um, those are the biggies. Dana. Uh, I watch a lot of HBO. <laughs> Is that the only station you guys get? That, well, it's where my wife works, so we tend to watch a lot of HBO. <laughs> that's all that's allowed. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of. I'll be watching a show, and then suddenly a clapper will come in, and like, oh, this is. I didn't know you were watching dailies. I, sorry. <laughs> I'm gonna go downstairs and watch last night's Charlie Rose. <laughs> Maybe it's Henry Kissinger again. Yeah, I, I would say Homeland is definitely amazing. Um, and I love Enlightened, um, Mike White's show. And, um, you know, then I watch really lame, you know, other really lame, you know. Like what? Survivor. Um, Survivor's great. Jersey Shore. Oh, not great. <laughs> yes. 
Diaries. Storage Wars. Yeah, Storage Wars. Are oh, Intervention. <laughs> Obvious. But Storage Wars is amazing because it, I hate reality shows because of the whole concept of a is reality show. Is it like about shows. storing things? It's so about... Finding things in storage. Prepare it's to have... It's a little on the nose, don't you think? Mind yeah. blown. If, 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 you have, if you have in your life managed to define the term massively cheating, <laughs> prepare for massively entertaining. <laughs> Here's the premise of Storage Wars. Here's a box. Would you like to know what's in it? <laughs> it's genius. What are the wars? <laughs> well, I'll tell you, Ben. The, uh, when people die, when become a ghost. When people die, and there's here a it comes. Ball. When people die, when, yeah. <laughs> wait for it, <laughs> Mrs. Nagamura. When when people who own storage facilities die, oh. these people that are junk dealers basically go and they bid on the bin, and they'll open the door, but they can't go inside. And so these guys bid on it, and then you get to see what's inside. It's a it's a completely primal. Uh, I had no idea. I thought it was how fast you could like put shit no, in boxes and organize a, them. It's not a game show. It's let's make a deal. It's like, would you like to know what's in this box? Yeah, I would. Oh, wow. That is ridiculous. Well, thank you all for being here. Uh, Robert Hewitt, Dana Gould, Liz Tickler. Uh Thanks to 826LA and everyone here in Nerdist Industries and Meltdown Comics. Goodbye. Now leaving Nerdist.com.